right across the tarmac were these really honest looking Russian uh, attack helicopters parked there. And on the way into town from the airport, you went by 50 caliber machine gun nests. And uh, uh, when I showed up, I was the only the one of one uh, international prosecutors in the capital, responsible for 800,000 people. Welcome to the Genesis Podcast with Joe Vollert. My interview today is with Phil Carney, class of 1976. We talk on May 31st, 2022. Phil goes from Sunset Boy to an international war crimes prosecutor. He left the DA's office to help prosecute war crimes in Kosovo for the UN, later was called to The Hague to prosecute the former prime minister of Kosovo. His time in Kosovo is captured in his book, Under the Blue Flag, My Mission in Kosovo. Phil is now an attorney with Murphy, Pearson, Bradley, and Feeney. Here's my interview with Phil Carney. Thank you for joining us today. Joe, my pleasure, and it's good to be back on 37th Avenue where I grew up. I grew up uh, literally half a block away from SI, 37th between Rivera and Santiago. Uh, yeah, give us a sense of the beginnings. What was the Carney family like growing up? And and I guess when you were born, uh, it was just sand dunes out here, right? Just sand dunes out there. We used to have dirt clod fights right right where you're sitting right now. Yeah. And uh, the Carneys came here um, from Ireland, as you, you expect, uh, right after the earthquake. My grandfather came from County Cork. Um, he never knew his father. He was uh, His father was dead by the time he was born. Wow. And so most of the kids got shipped out this way. He came here and he did what all great uh, Irishmen did of that generation. He joined the fire department and he started a career or started a legacy in the family of civil service. Uh, he had hmm. he had five kids. He had a, um, my Aunt Mary and then four uh, male siblings. My dad was the oldest and they all worked for the city. We had in there. We had a, a registrar of voters. We had. Uh, my dad and my grandfather were firemen. Uh, another uncle was the principal of Galileo. It was O.J. Simpson's oh, wow. backfield coach at Galileo. Yeah. Then he went on to Lowell and Wallenberg. Uh, I had an aunt who was a, the dean of women uh, at AP Jenny High School, right, right uh, uh, off yeah, to right your next other door. Side. Sure, yeah. Had a uh, another uncle who um, who taught in the court schools for kids who were incarcerated. So. Uh, who was the Carney that was at Lowell and uh, Galileo? That was uh, Jim Carney. Who yeah, was a Jim. I'm, and he was great friends with Jack McCaffrey. So, a uh, quick story about uh, about him. Uh, uh, they were, Jack had taught at Galileo for years, and they were classmates and good friends. And by uh, first year as head football coach, we played the hundredth anniversary of the SISH game at Keysar. It was right when they redeveloped Keysar. And um, we play there to a huge crowd, probably, you know, relatively speaking, not, not the best high school football uh, in, in, around. But we end up winning six to three, I think. Well, I go to my parents' house in Westlake after, and there's Jim Carney and Jack McCaffrey sitting on the couch having a having a cocktail. That's the first time I ever met them. And anyway, I, we digress. Just, just to finish that digression all the way, many mornings of the week I'm running stairs at Kizar Stadium. Uh my dad played football at USF there, and it's a connection to him still that I keep. Uh, yeah, working out in the mornings at Kizar. Um, so, how, how many of you were there? How many uh, in your immediate family? 
my immediate family, there was three of us. Uh, I was the youngest. I have two older siblings, uh, both uh, both uh, sisters. We went to, like me, St. Gabriel's, then they went on to Mercy before I went to mm-hmm. SI. And getting back to the civil service component, um, the uh, I went one year, I went to undergraduate school at Davis, and I, I came home one summer, and I was going to take the fire department exam. And my dad said, enough. Improve the breed. Do anything else. You cannot go. I, I forbid you to go in the fire department. <laughs> So, I, uh, you know, I, w- I went to law school and um, I graduated from law school and I, I did the uh, kind of the carny thing. I went to work for the city as a DA in San Francisco and I was there for uh, 17 years. Wow. I ended up uh, on the homicide team when the war in Kosovo uh, broke out and then ended. And the UN did something they had never done in their history before. They put out a call for five international prosecutors to go into the local courts of the former Yugoslavia and try war crimes on the, on the soil where the, mm-hmm. the crimes had occurred, much like is going on in Ukraine right now. So could, I was like, you talk, to talk, talk about that kind of responding to that call. You, you mentioned that in the beginning of your, your book under the blue flag and your, about your mission in Kosovo. Cause I think it speaks to, you know, the, the, some of the education and training we get at a Jesuit school. Right. Um, it, it, you know, you know talk, you, tell, tell that story a little bit. I'm happy to. I mean, the I think the reason, you know, my, my kids now are in Catholic school. And one of the reasons they are is because I believe in, um, you know, in a material world, uh, Catholics are taught to think about others first. And uh, it's not all about materialism. It's not all about it's uh, thinking about the feelings of others uh um, even before those of your, yourself and trying to help. And uh, that's bred into us, it's bred into our kids. I can see it happening with my own my own sons. And I think it's a great thing. And so when, you know, I hate to ascribe too lofty uh, uh, motivations to myself, but, you know, you do think about uh, suffering elsewhere. And uh, when the, the UN put out that call, I just thought it was kind of a natural it, it, it uh, very honestly, it sounded exciting to me, but it also felt like an important mission as well for uh, those victims. Um, you, know, you, had you, you had a, a former colleague just email you out of the blue, right? About that job? Yeah, he was a, uh, he had been in DA, Mike Carbon was his name. And then he went off to, you know, he was single and he kind of went off to explore the world uh, uh, all over the Middle East. He ended up in, and then he ended up from there. Um, in Sarajevo and Bosnia and uh, then in Kosovo and he called me and said hey listen they're looking for a uh, for war crimes prosecutors here and they're taking out you know applications from all over the world why don't you throw an application and it was just that quick yeah. I did it wow I had no, no international experience at all and uh, went through the whole interview process and got lucky enough to get selected and, uh, so, so t- talk about that experience a little bit, you know, it, but both um, personally and professionally. I mean, what, obviously, you know, probably a Barry, a guy your whole life, and all of a sudden you're thrown into a, um, you know, very conflicted part of the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you got a sense of the centuries-old animosity amongst the, the various uh, peoples in the former Yugoslavia. And then, um, you know, just what, what was that like personally? And then what did you dig your, what did you really dig into uh, professionally there? 
Yeah, Joe, I, I thought the world ended at 19th Avenue back in those days. You know, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't have a huge worldview. In fact, the, the book that you mentioned earlier, the working title of it for years was Off the Carousel. I wanted to write about hmm. you know, being a San Francisco person in my life, and people hear your last name, and they want to know whose son you are and uh, where you went and all that stuff. And I wanted to know what it was like just to go be an anonymous human being, live on my own in a different part of the world, in a, in a different part of the second world uh, that, back then. And uh, that was really interesting to me, you know, to get a little perspective on the world and life, my life here. So um, I did that. And um, the, the luxury of having those thoughts about some grand personal experiment ended almost when I put my feet in the tarmac because, um, you know, I, I remember walking down off the plane in this broiling heat in the, in Pristina, the capital of Kosovo. And, um, right across the tarmac were these really honest looking Russian uh, attack helicopters parked there. And on the way into town from the airport, you went by a 50 caliber machine gun nests. And, wow. uh, uh, when I showed up, I was the, only the one of one uh, international prosecutors in the capital responsible for 800,000 people. And, um, you know, this was a post-war situation where, you know, post-war as Ukraine's experience right now, you, things get blown up and, uh, you know, judges leave the bench and cops go home and, and uh, grenades are, th are thrown through uh, the window, the kitchen windows of enemies. And it was a, uh, I remember distinctly meeting another person starting on the first day. We went to have a drink uh, at the UN Transit Hotel that first afternoon I was there. And even in the couple of hours it took me to get off the plane, throw my stuff in a, in a hotel room, and go to the, the then Department of Judicial Affairs, and then go out for a drink. Even in that those handful of hours, I, I became sick to my stomach with fear. Uh, oh. It was... You know, you're just a you know a, a white guy in a suit walking down a <clears throat> a very urban place with people who don't look like you. They're, you know, these are kind of southern Italian looking type you know, Albanians mostly, and uh, everybody. It's a massively well armed society with a bunch of um, you know uh, post war battle hardened tough guys walking around, and you just realize if they want to kill you, they could do it in the blink of an eye, and probably mm -hmm. nothing would ever happen. Consequences. Uh, so it was a, How, what was the um, rule of law like at the time? There, did you, did they have the the basic infrastructure for rule of law, or was that um, something you were there to help? Um, you know, impose. Yeah, the answer is both. I mean, they had the just in terms of daily crime. The, the Kosovo was a the war in Kosovo was basically. Uh, against uh, kind of a, a ruling class, uh, maybe 10% of the population of Serbs fighting the uh, kind of the lower class at the time, the Albanians who represented about 90% of the population. And all of the infrastructure that ran the courts and the, and the law enforcement establishment were Serbs. And they were all, they were defeated. They went home. And so there was nothing left. Uh, hmm. Former cab drivers, uh, anybody with any legal experience, became judges, became prosecutors. And that was fine for the day-to-day -day crimes, right? Theft and domestic abuse and uh, disputes over, over small things. But when it came time for war crime prosecution, which is 
by definition, interethnic, really, when you think about it, intertribal anyway. It's always one tribe against another. You couldn't, you literally couldn't have locals sit in judgment of those those cases because if mm-hmm. an Albanian were sitting in, in judgment of a Serb defendant, be very even if they wanted to do the right thing, it would be very tough to and survive. Right? They get a knock at this. Those judges will get a knock on their doors. So Serbs who were accused of crimes then, who uh, were granted no bail, they were convicted of, of crimes they didn't commit. And then by and the, the obverse of that, if you were an Albanian war criminal, um, you would not receive bail. You just get released. Yeah. You, you know, you did, the case would get dismissed for any reason. And um, I, I don't want to say, go so far to say it was, uh, it was anarchy, but it was, uh, there wasn't a lot of justice being done before it got there. Yeah. Now you um, specifically, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you you tried the, was it the the, the mayor of, of Kosovo for war crimes? Was that like the focus of your uh, prosecution? It made me a very popular guy there, Joe. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I, um, I indicted and had arrested the head of the secret police. Oh wow. And, uh, you know, you learn when you talk about war crime prosecution, you know, war crimes happen in wars and wars have winners and losers. And if you want to try a loser of, for war crimes, like uh, the Nazis in Nuremberg after World War II, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's it's definitely easier. I mean, they lost. They're out of power. They, they don't have any any of the arms of, of leverage that they would otherwise. And so witnesses come out of the woodwork. You're a hero. But when I when I got to Kosovo, I learned that there was major blood on the sides of both the winners and the losers. And um, an Albanian farmer stumbled into my office one day and informed me about a series of, of kind of death camps that the winners had, had run during the war. So um, I extended my mission to investigate that case. Um, I could have gone home, but I chose not to. And... Um, we, I learned basically through the investigation that the uh, the deputy commander of the secret police, the functional head of the secret police, had re- had run those camps, had conducted extrajudicial slayings. Wow! And so I ended up having him arrested. And then, um, as my dad would have said, Joe, business picked up thereafter. I got evacuated. To <laughs> another, I yeah. got evacuated to a NATO base. I ended up with six bodyguards uh, and a chase vehicle wherever I went. Uh, you know, it was, but that's what the, uh, that's where Sound the case like Jason Bourne or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I don't want to under, underplay it either. It was tense. Um, yeah. so what uh, ended up, but, what ended up, um, happening with that case? Uh, he and two of his compatriots and a, a fourth person who was indicted later, who was actually above him in the chain of, of the command structure of the Coastal Liberation Army, uh, they all were convicted. Uh, There's a, a very long appellate journey, convictions and then appeals that were overturned and reconvictions acquired and re-reversals. And in any event, um, the uh, uh, perpetrators were convicted. And there was and, a lot of... And were, had they been apprehended or, uh, you know, like, did they end up serving time? They did. And uh, I, I went to visit one of the um, 
during the investigation, the, the deputy commander of the secret police summoned me uh, after I had him arrested to jail. And I felt like a summons, honestly. I mean, he was kind of, hmm. he was a war hero and he had a lot more um, sway in Koso than I did. And uh, so I went into jail uh, with the judge I was doing the case with. And um, we sat down and talked to him. Really? And uh, harrowing uh, experience. You know, he kind of, a, I still remember his eyes, like a shark's dead eyes. And he was looking at me and um, he said, you've made a very big mistake here. Do you realize that? And uh, we had a very frank conversation. And um, huh. Was he, he threatening said, you or was he pleading his innocence? A little bit of both, I think. Yeah. And um, we, uh, you know, we said, listen, uh, and the judge was right there with me. I don't want to, I don't want to say it was just me talking to him. Uh, and she was a fireball from Poland, just a very strong minded woman. And um, we said, listen, you know, uh, we have credible evidence that you are killing civilians uh, extra, extrajudicially. That's wrong. You can't do that. And, um, you know, he said, listen, if you, if you ask the average Coast Guard that was okay or not, they would, you know, they, they would come down on my side. And I said, well, you'll have your day in court. And uh, I think the only thing that's, very honestly, Joe, the only thing that saved me was that the fact that I was an American. Americans wow. had been very big, very big supporters of the of the uh, who are now called Kosovans, and um, I just don't know if they could survive the backlash of killing an American prosecutor. I think that's right. if I was from any other country, I would have had a much different time. I think. Yeah. Um, what was it like? Um, you know, paint a little bit of a picture of, of trying to uh, prosecute a case at the Hague. The, um, I mean, are you? Is it a jury trial or is it a tribunal of judges? What's it, you know, how, how does that justice system work? So uh, the Hague was five years later. Um, so I, oh, I finished gotcha. my okay. So we know it's totally understand why. And I went, I, I came home <clears throat> and then they, uh, they indicted the, the former prime minister of Kosovo and extradited him to the Hague. So uh, I was seconded from the department of justice back to the United Nations to try that case in the Hague. And, the Hague and Kosovo are night and day. Pristina, second world, nothing worked. Electricity failed every night. You couldn't drink the water. Plumbing system was spotty. Uh, just the basic nuts and bolts infrastructure of, of everything, including the justice system, were haphazard. Um, the Hague is different. The Hague is in the Netherlands, as you know. Uh, and so, you know why they call it the Hague? Hmm. I, I didn't know that before I went there. I was so intimidated by that name. Uh, you know, they don't call it the San Francisco Joe. They call it yeah, right. but the Hague is that the, the Dutch translation of the Hague is Den Haag, which means the hedge. They named it after a bunch of hedgerows that were in the lowlands up there. Huh. Uh, becomes much less uh, intimidating when you, when you know yeah, the right. name. Yeah. But the Hague, you know, there's a bunch of Dutchies going back and forth on bicycles. You know, it was a very lovely red brick uh, kind of feel to it. Uh, everything was much more organized. There's more court staff. There is more security. You weren't worried about getting killed on the way home. I had no no security guards there. Um, but it was it was easily the hardest case ever tried. It lasted 13 months. Almost killed me. I lost like 20 pounds during the wow. the um, the trial. The um, very good lawyers on your side, and the degree of witness intimidation was beyond anything you can compare with. Even though it was tried in the Netherlands. 
the witnesses still came from Kosovo and the Balkans. And uh, we had one witness, our chief witness was, they tried to kill him three times before the trial. They finally succeeded in a drive-by machine gunning. God. And the male and female homicide detectives that were assigned to solve that slaying themselves were each assassinated as we got closer to trial. God, uh, wow. You just cannot, uh, you can't fathom the degree of witness intimidation uh, that, that went on. Um, but, but we got through that. And, uh, you know, I, that's when I, when I look now at Ukraine, uh, who are trying cases like we did in Kosovo on the blood where the, on the ground where the blood was spilled in their case during the conflict, which I find to be amazing. Um, just, um, just an extraordinary thing. There's, there's still enough of the infrastructure standing in that country to start bringing people to justice now. Yeah. And yeah. they've already had their first conviction or the first three convictions. We talked about that earlier. Just today is today is May 31st of 2022. Just today, uh, two Russian soldiers pled guilty to shelling civilians, a war crime. Uh, and they got a significant, I think, 11 and nine year sentences. Those must be um, the first instances of war crimes being charged during a, a conflict, correct? I really can't think of another. And it's really yeah. the degree there is the, um, the female uh, attorney general of Ukraine uh, said recently that she has 11,000 investigations running of wow. potential war crimes committed by Russian soldiers in that country. And, uh, what's extraordinary about that is just the volume. I mean, you could never try that many in The Hague, right? It just takes too long. So I think most of these crimes are going to be tried in the courts of Ukraine. Yeah. The bodies, many of the bodies are there. You know, in international law, getting bodies to the courtroom is a big deal. Yeah. Um, like trying to get Vladimir Putin to The Hague is never going to happen, I don't think. Right. Um, but they, but the, it sounds like Ukraine's had the, you know, at least a, a few decades of, of trying to, um, build the infrastructure of a legal system so that they could, you know, try these. Now, you know, I, you know, I think we know that Ukraine wasn't known for its, um, uh, you know, it was known for some of its corruption, uh, especially for uh, Zelensky. And, you know, that had been an ongoing issue in the post-Soviet era. But they've had enough time to, it sounds like, to build the infrastructure to be able to try these cases. And, you know, perhaps the gr greatest ex American export is the, uh, you know, our legal system in the rule of law. And it's, it seems to have a foothold there. Absolutely. And uh, you really have to um, applaud our state department for funding missions abroad by um, rule of law practitioners here in this country. I just got retained by state to do that in a um, country I really can't name right now, but, uh, we really, there's a lot of really good work by Americans going on in this, funded by the State Department and the Justice Department that never makes it to the papers, but you end up sitting in a room with people saying, okay, this is how you make a case. This is what you have to do. And making a case in 2022 with social media, with all that stuff is, is way more, uh, is way different than it was even a decade ago when I was doing it. So uh, can you, can you uh, speak a, a bit? I want to ask about Ukraine, but I want to um, not leave your experience of, uh, you know, both in Kosovo and in The Hague. Um, you know, how, how did, were you able to, 
you know, put the case together. You know, that's, it's, uh, it's got to be extraordinarily uh, complex with so many different factors with an international, um, you know, uh, court system. How, how does that work? Well, you know, first of all, when you say an international court system, it, it just means that there are uh, judges and prosecutors from, we didn't uh, bring in defense lawyers, but there are judges and prosecutors from every UN country. There's 192, I think. So, you know, I work with uh, uh, Cameroonian judges and Malawian hmm. uh, prosecutors and Filipina prosecutors and Germans and Dutch and French. And um, you, you throw a dart at the board and you, we had one of them working with us. And internationals tend to get grouped together as a whole, like a unified whole. It, the, nothing could have been further from the truth. The effect I write about in the book, the, the meetings of the judges and prosecutors and the international staff in Kosovo were, we almost could have committed a war crime inside the, the room. There was such vitri vitriol among the international participants you know, with different legal experiences and different views on the law. Uh, but we worked that out. Um, and in, in terms of investigating crimes in a place that's very clannish, very tribal, where everybody knows everybody, you couldn't just drive up to a witness's home in a UN forerunner and ask them questions because that would get them killed, right? Mm -hmm. I remember one case, there was a family that had been the victim of a slaying in the camps, uh, the death camps. And we had to get to this family, but we couldn't approach them, right? They didn't have a phone. They, they weren't internet savvy. Uh, we had no way of getting them other than physically. And if we did that, they'd be marked as, as cooperators and either intimidated or killed. So we set up a, a, a traffic blockade around the entire village. And we told people we were checking for vehicle registrations. Hmm. And everybody that came through got stopped. We looked at their papers. And then these are traffic cops. We didn't have war crime, war, you know, uh, war crime investigators doing this. And when it can, when the family in question got stopped at the, at the blockade, a business card was handed over, call this person about your brother's death. And they moved on. And that's, and wow. that family came, came to Pristina on a, on a, uh, with, with a, uh, you know, they invented a, a reason to be in Pristina and came to see us. And that's how we got them. But you, you just have to be creative and dogged because these things are not easy. Do, do you have any sense of um, the state of civil life in Kosovo today? I do. I have friends who are still there. And um, it's, it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. um, it is struggling with its economy. It's struggling with all the things that, you know, I don't want to label them necessarily a second world place, but it's, it's, they're struggling with all the economic pressures that they've always struggled with. Tribalism is still alive there, mm -hmm. but they're making steps forward. They have an American university, mm -hmm. uh, very, uh, the, the younger, younger class of Kosovo are very internet savvy, very intelligent. Mm -hmm. So I have, I have hope for them. I really do. Yeah. You, you, I was going to ask, and you kind of uh, mentioned an American university there. Yeah. I'm a little biased, obviously, but you, you think, you know, that education is really the key to establishing a society that is based on the rule of law, you know, that does seek, um, you know, uh, justice so that people can live civilly and, and, you know, with some sense of security and, and peace. Right. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that true? I mean, uh, just 
if someone knows that there's a potential consequence for bad conduct, right, right, you know, a hope of some kind of justice, that's a very big deal. It really is. If you don't have that, your your country can go down one path into corruption and black marketeering. Well, that, that's do- getting back to the um, Ukraine. The uh, that's my sense for the you know trying those cases now. Is it sending a direct message to the Russian soldiers that there there are consequences for your behavior? You know, yeah. and what you're doing is being watched. And you know, we've got certain you know cameras and cell phones and, and a lot of a lot more evidence available uh, today than I'm sure that was available when you were trying these cases. And isn't that great, Joe? I mean, isn't it? Um, you know, I, you hate to be too simplistic in these things, and everything's nuanced. But basically, you and the driver before between um, Ukraine and Russia, as it was between Milosevic, you know, Serb, and, and the Kosovars is somebody not happy with a line on a map, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, Ukraine should be part of Russia. I, I want a buffer between democracy and, and uh, my country, between NATO and my country. And you don't, just because somebody is not happy with the, ma- the way a, a map happens to be drawn in, in a particular decade, it doesn't give you permission to blow the hell out of people's lives, to level apartment buildings, to kill children. Kill, you know, what's the number of civilians have been killed so far? 4,000, 5,000 yeah, yeah. in Ukraine and lives horribly mangled forever. You don't get to do for, that. For what? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And uh, it's um, so good. I'm, I'm glad that people are using technology. I'm glad that uh, cases are being made as we speak by people mining social media. Fantastic. So you mentioned this earlier, it just, uh, I'm sure folks would, would kind of wonder, you know, are we going to see a day where Vladimir Putin is, you know, prosecuted at the Hague or is that just a, uh, a pipe dream? Well, um, first of all, who knows, but I'll tell you the, the experience of, of Slobodan Milosevic, who was mm-hmm. the mightily popular, um, prime minister of the former Yugoslavia and then, and then Serbia in his day. Right. Hardcore Serbian nationalists, much like uh, Putin is a hardcore Russian nationalist. Um, When the wars were all over in the Balkans and The Hague was investigating uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and The Hague was investigating war crimes that that happened in the Balkans. Many of them led to Milosevic and everybody said he will never get extradited to The Hague. Right. I mean. The Hague can't try people in abstention. They actually need a body. Right. You have to be there, right? So, lo and behold, a progressive, uh, West-leaning president got elected in uh, Serbia, Zoran Dinjic, and he agreed to extradite Milosevic to The Hague, and that happened. And so they could try him. Uh, Dinjic was assassinated himself three years later for an ultra-nationalist, but... The moral story is, if you have the right regime change in Russia, and Russia wants to get back within the world order and have sanctions lifted, lifted, maybe it could happen. I don't see it, but it could. Right. Never say never. I think we take so for granted the, um, you know, the the rule of law and our own personal safety. You know, you hear these really heroic stories of people, you know, trying to find justice, and they're putting their lives on the line. 
uh, knowingly to testify. And obviously some of them don't make it to the witness stand or you tell a story in your book of a witness uh, that you're going to use in a, in a case. And he wants to go home and kill his family before he, you know, uh, goes on the stand. Cause that's, what's going to happen to them. You know, you know, I, um, I remember that distinctly that was in the Hague and uh, yeah. he was a very important witness in our case. And he was my witness. And I went to go get him at the, in the witness waiting room and he was curled up. And this is a 50 year old uh, man who could probably pass for 70 big lines on his face, uh, facial hair, uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I said, sir, it's time for you to testify. And he goes, I can't, because if I testify against those men, they will kill my entire family. So I said, well, come with me to the courtroom. We'll, we'll blank out. Um, we'll close all the windows in the court. I'll close the blinds. We, we will, um, turn off the monitors. And so I brought him into the, the tribunal there's three judges on the panel. There's no juries there. There's three three judges. This international law, and he's questioned by the court. And the court, the presiding judge says, "Sir, is there anything that that we can do that would allow you to testify in this case?" And, he, and these people don't don't joke, Joe. There's no sense of humor. There's no sarcasm. There's no exaggeration. These are very devout Muslim, serious men and women. He goes, "Well, yes, Sir Honor, there is." And I'm thinking to myself. God, thank God, we have, there might be a way out of this. And he goes, if you'll allow me to go home, I will kill all the members of my immediate family, give them proper Muslim burials, and then I can return and testify for you. Not, that was almost verbatim, the translation. It just gives you a sense of how difficult these things can be. Yeah, that deep. Yeah. Hey, um, what uh, thinking of our uh, you know common audience of, of alumni that would uh, listen to this, and perhaps you know maybe they're young or mid career or, or feeling an inkling like you did many years ago to you know, respond to um, you know a call to something deeper than than what you were doing. How how can uh, you know talk to the SI grads a little bit or talk to you know talk to that 25 year old aspiring attorney um, or an SI grad who wants to wants to, uh, to just get involved and help well the, I mean the great thing is there are so many avenues to do it Joe now um, you can go there, there's really three or four main routes you can go um, the governmental route like you could work for the Justice Department or the State Department right you go work in an embassy overseas you can do that. There's a million non-governmental organizations that are called NGOs. Um, Amnesty International is one. Human Rights Watch is another international crisis group. Uh, the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. I've got a friend who spent a year or two in Ukraine uh, back in the 2016s and 2017s just being a, 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 you know, a, a combat observer. He would go up in the hills and with binoculars and he reported on wartime activity that day. Uh, he ended up getting married in Ukraine and uh, coming home with a bride. Um, you can work for the United Nations, of course, the original Big Blue. If we have any New York Giants fans, uh, <laughs> they, are, they are the Big Blue, um, which is a great, let me put a plug in for them. They are a great organization. Uh, you know, like all organizations, they suffer from uh, bureaucracy and stuff, but they, they, are, they put boots on the ground all over the world. Uh, great. And also there's a new kind of, if you're a tech-savvy blogger, hacker type, um, 
you and I were speaking, speaking earlier about organizations like Bellingcat, mm-hmm. named after kind of a fictional uh, fair, fairy tale of a mm-hmm. mice trying to put bells on a cat to, to warn them of, of his arrival. But they um, they do what's called uh, open source intelligent mining, OSINT mining, and they'll put together they'll solve war crimes from their laptops using Google Earth and other things. And these organizations, Anonymous is another one. Anonymous declared war on Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, you can really have an impact. You know, the mm-hmm. Belling had solved the, the Malaysian airliner, uh, uh, you know, which was shot down. They, they determined that the Russians did that. Mm-hmm. They had a huge role in the Syrian conflict. There's a lot of ways out there. And, um, Really Maybe fascinating. They piece together various like video clips and from cell phones and just gather a whole body of data to uh, really become renowned and, and doing something like that. And they um, use satellites to uh, get GPS coordinates for them and timing stuff so that they can be used in court. It's a great um, it, it's a great way to get involved. So, how many years is an attorney for you? Uh, this is a big number, Joe. You ready for this number now? Thirty seven is Good for the number. You. Yeah. What drive? What drives you? Like I, I imagine that that that's a you know career that's evolved over time. What's what um, really had prompted you to get into it and, and drives you today? Uh, you know, I, I retired after thirty five years as a prosecutor a couple of years ago from the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, now I'm in a private firm, and what drives me is good people get in trouble. Uh, I'm representing a woman right now who was who was uh, raped and extorted by an on duty. Uh, code enforcement inspector in San Jose, uh, mm-hmm. immigrant woman, and uh, we're trying to get her a little a little justice in the world. And um, mm-hmm. uh, you'd be surprised at how often good, hardworking people. You know, I never, I never, based on my past, I'm not a, I don't consider myself a criminal defense lawyer, but uh, there are good people who get in trouble, and yeah. um, it's it's a pleasure to be out of the government to be able to help them now. Well, it's uh, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to you know talk about your experience. It's certainly relevant today in in, in world affairs, um, and also I think speaks and gives hope to um, uh, you know uh, the you know pursuit of law and the career that you've chosen. So much of what we read and hear about today is is politicized or you know painted one way or the other, and, and our legal system. Uh, is, is you know shouldn't be that way, and, and I know that so many good people do seek justice regardless of their you know political views, and really do try to build a society built on the rule of law. So it's uh, applaud you for your career and doing that, and really appreciate you taking some time today. And Joe, it all goes back to Thirty Seventh Avenue. It really does. The work you the work that you and your brethren are doing out there, imparting those kind of values on on kids is really important and necessary in this world right now. So who, keep up who do you part. remember? Who, who, who impacted you when you were a student at oh, SI? Uh, so many. Uh, Frank Corwin uh, comes to mind. Uh, you know, Brother Draper, who I still see once in a while, is this an icon? Uh, so many of the scholastics. Uh, talk about the rule of law, right? <laughs> With yeah, Brother Draper. Law, yes. <laughs> yeah, court of uh, law. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but seriously, Joe, keep up the good work out there. And, uh, and if any of the kids watching this ever need to sit down and get a little bit of advice from somebody who's been, who, I don't know if I want to say been there, but has a little bit of experience and miles on 
I'm happy to, happy to give it. That's great. We really appreciate that, Phil. Well, thank great. you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Joe. Take care now. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions for future interviews, please send them our way. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please like and recommend this podcast. The SI Genesis podcast is a production of San Ignatius College Preparatory in San Francisco, California. To learn more about the school and Jesuit education, visit www.siprep.org. Thank you.